Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. Or, if you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, you can subscribe within the app in just a few clicks. Although in 1914, Thomas Cooks evacuated 6,000 tourists who were stranded in Europe, they continued sending tour groups to unaffected parts of France, particularly the Côte d'Azur, which was advertised as being fashionably uncrowded due to world events. The poet A. E. Houseman paid his first ever visit to the Riviera in 1915, when the worst classes who infest it are away. That, listeners to our previous podcast, will not be surprised to hear is from Lucy Lethbridge's brilliant new book on um, the invention of the tourist industry, the invention of, of uh, holidays in the modern sense. Uh, tourists, which Dominic I know you're a big fan of as well. Uh, we both yep. unreservedly recommend, do we not? We do indeed. And we were talking a lot about it last time, weren't we? The invention of Victorian tourism. We've done the 18th century. We've done the 19th century. So we thought that, you know, we'd <laughs> we'd really unsettle and surprise you by doing the 20th century and maybe even go into the 21st century. Who knows? We're very unimaginative on this podcast. But um, Dominic, so we're now very much moving into your your period, your area of expertise. And I know that you've, you've written about... Um, tourism in the 50s 60s 70s 80s um so very much looking forward to what you have to say about that but before that we got in the previous episode to the first world war um Lucy Lethbridge's extraordinary fact that uh people I had no idea that that people were still going on holiday to the south of France throughout the yeah. first world war I mean, incredible isn't it who knew so Dominic the first world war yeah the beginning of the uh, the last episode, we looked at the way in which when the Napoleonic Wars come to an end, people from Britain flood across the Channel uh, and visit the continent. And they go to the Battle of Waterloo, don't they? The site of Waterloo. They do indeed. Uh, and the same thing happens pretty much after the uh, the end of the First World War, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Absolutely. So I think what you have is two different kinds of tourism. You have, I mean, we talked before in our podcast about the end of the First World War. We talked about Kipling's wonderful short story, The Gardener incredibly moving short story about a woman who goes to visit the grave of, um, as we think, her nephew in Flanders. Obviously, there were lots of trips organized for people to go to cemeteries and people to go to kind of pay their respects on the battlefields and so on. But there's also, just as in with Waterloo, and we talked about in the last podcast, there are people who are sort of ghouls who are going to see the the battlefields, I suppose you would say. Well, are, they are they ghouls? Are they, I mean, well, I, I mean, are, are people going today ghouls? I suppose they're not. But I think there's something slightly different about going in 1919, Tom, mm. don't you? But maybe you want to see the scene of great events. I mean, if you've been doing nothing but so, reading yeah. about it, perhaps. Or, no, I think you're probably, yeah, I'm being, maybe I'm being a little bit harsh. Maybe I am being too harsh. Um, but people are being, you know, people go to watch bodies being dug up. Out of out okay, of, that is a bit ghoulish. Shell crates yeah, and things. I mean, that I, I don't know. I think yeah. that is probably a little bit ghoulish. I mean, certainly, I won't be. You know, I wouldn't be planning that as a family holiday. No, no, myself. Um, but obviously, the First World War, by, by and large, I would say, is an interruption. I mean, obviously, for most people, 
um, they're at the front or they're kind of working overtime at the factory. They don't have the money. They can't travel because of blockades or whatever. So for a lot of people, this is not a great, the 1910s are not a great holiday period. But then after, once you get into the 1920s, you get a lot of trends that had started in the late Victorian or the Edwardian period really kind of coming to fruition. So obviously still most people in Britain um, do not have statutory holidays. So that's not going to come in until the late 1930s. So for manual workers, for example, I mean, they're not going to be going to sort of to foreign beaches and things. But if you are fortunate, if you are part of a kind of cooperative society, if you've got a very strong trade union or something, um, if, you, if you're sort of self-improving and earnest and sort of high-minded and, and so on and so forth, you may have signed up to a kind of travel club. And those started in, I would say, probably the 1880s. One of the most famous ones is the – so, Tom, you must be familiar with the travel agency Lun Poly, which was mm -hmm. quite successful yep. when we were children and teenagers. Yep. So they had those adverts where at the end people would say, Lun Poly, get away, and the person yes. would kind of vanish. So it's called Lun Poly because it's the merger of two different travel agencies, one of which was the, the Polytechnic Touring Association. I did not know that which organized incredibly high-minded group outings. So, Dominic, we, is, is this, I mean, this is, part, again, part of a continuum with Thomas Cook, who was a, a high-minded teetotaling It's exactly Baptist. part of that continuum. Yeah, it's, it's appealing to, I would say, an even more sort of high-minded group of people. I mean, I'll be frank. We talked in the last episode about how horrible it would be to go to a German spa in the 19th century yeah. and drink this disgusting water and all that. To me, what would be even worse would be to go on a on an outing with the Holiday Fellowship or the Workers' Travel Association in the 1920s and spend my evening singing folk songs and discussing the novels of Virginia Woolf, which is what tourists yes. were expected to do. Would you like to go to the Norwegian fjords and do that with your fellow travellers? Do you know, I, I think it would make a kind of wonderful reality TV show to send you off on one of those, to try and... Yeah. Uh, try and re recreate one because you know, there was a big craze for that wasn't there people living in iron age villages or absolutely in country houses that kind of thing or yeah 1940s house you could go off on the uh the 1920s walking tour <laughs> oh god yeah I'd, I'd pay good money to watch that so this is also the year of camping yeah so how does that begin so again that's um non-conformists kind of political radicals uh back to nature so all the kind of people that george orwell is rude about prune drinkers exactly that in mean, that george orwell podcast we read with great well i read with great relish that uh <laughs> section where george orwell attacks sort of left-wing people his fellow left-wing people and he says nature cure quacks feminists nudists fruit juice drinkers sandal wearers they are precisely the people who are on these holidays at the beginning of the 20th century they are singing folk songs they are walking in woods with shorts but dominic dominic yeah to play devil's advocate do you're, you're, you're a worker in a factory. Yeah. You know, you, you, you're breathing in filthy air all day. Uh, it's backbreaking. It's exhausting. It's relentless. Even you, surely, in that situation, would enjoy the chance to, to, to breathe in the fresh, clean air of a field. Wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I would, but they, I don't think the people who are going on these trips are ordinary workers in factories. Trades unionists, are they? I think they are very, very high-minded and sort of... Um, they're the Fabian Society, are they? A bit Fabian. They're, they're a bit Fabian. So there would be some trade unionists, maybe. And particularly if the trade unions had organised such an outing, I think there would probably be less folk singing and more... Drinking of 
maybe drinking of 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 real ales or something but i don't I, but that i could live with that the other stuff with the sandals and okay. the nudism i could not live with <laughs> Um, but camping is part of that world. So camping is absolutely part of this sort of it's, – it's very cooperative in spirit. It's very politically radical. It's f- You're full of kind of – you're surrounded by people who are talking about philanthropy and about building utopia and stuff. Um, and this, I think camping still slightly has that. Maybe I'm, maybe campers listening to this will be offended, but I think it slightly has that tinge, doesn't it? There's a sort of high-mindedness Yeah, to perhaps. Yes, Although there's glamping now, isn't there? Which is basically like living in a very posh hotel. I could do glamping, but not. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I'll tell you what is really interesting. So what also is high minded, which people will not think of, is sunbathing. So people who yeah, like I can see that. camping and like going on these tours also believe that the sun is good for you. I mean, this is something completely new, isn't it? Because for so much of human history, paleness was prized because it was a sign of, of being part of the elite. Yeah. By the sort of turn of the 20th century, people are talking about sun baths and things like that. So, so Lucy Lethbridge in her book, Tourists, has a quote from what Norm, the writer Norman Douglas calls it paganism and nudity and laughter. And D.H. Lawrence, she has a wonderful, very D.H. Lawrence quote where D.H. Lawrence has got a, from 1925, he has a woman who's sunbathing. And do you want to, do you want to, I mean, you can almost, it's like written by somebody, one of Lawrence's <laughs> enemies doing a parody. <laughs> is it pre-epic? She feels that the sun is mating with her, uh, yeah. in his words. Well, she so says she slid off all her clothes and lay naked in the sun. As she lay, she looked up through her fingers at the central sun, his blue pulsing roundness. <laughs> whose outer edges streamed brilliance right pulsing with marvelous blue and streaming white fire from his edges the sun he faced down to her with his look of blue fire and enveloped her breasts and her face her throat her tired belly her knees her thighs and her feet yeah never change dh lawrence never change but so dominic anybody who's even faintly approximated to nude sunbathing and i haven't but that's a terrible image tom i once inadvertently sunbathed I won't go into the details, but the tops, let's say the tops of my back thighs were inadvertently exposed. And by the end of the day, they were bleeding. Oh, no. The sun had beaten down on them because if if the sun doesn't normally see your skin, it it burns very quickly. So if people have never sunbathed before, if if the the custom is is that you don't go into the sun, what happens when you're suddenly a a D.H. Lawrence heroine and you're stripping off and the sun with its boiling (laughs) great whatever masculinity is, yeah masculinity <laughs> yeah. is probing itself towards you i mean it, you're, you're gonna burn aren't you no because you will have invested in the brand new 1930s produced um suntan lotion made yeah, I, by uh I, I knew you were gonna say that a man from l'oreal uh so the founder of l'oreal is a man called eugene schuller and he creates the first sun protection cream and calls it ombre solaire and it launched in 1935 but I'm pleased to say, because we always like a bit of uh, a bit of a laugh on this podcast to other people's misfortunes, don't we, Tom? That do. um, a lot of yep. people didn't put this on because it was presumably very expensive, and they they put on um, homemade potions of their own devising or ones that were recommended in magazines. And a very popular choice was olive oil and lemon juice. Did it work? Uh, I don't believe it did. Or some people. There's one um, guy. Who, Again, from Lucy Lethbridge's book, she says, um, he, he writes, it's very easy to prepare a homemade sun lotion. Mix equal parts of olive oil and vinegar and add a dash of iodine afterwards. <laughs> that's going to appeal to the ladies, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Basically, yeah. You, you dress, you put yourself salad dressing. 
Um, so it wasn't until 1956 that people discovered the link between being sunburned and skin cancer. So people were completely, I, mean, I think, running right to the end of the 20th century. A lot of people just continue to be yeah. sort of um, almost willfully ignorant of the danger of um, excessive. I suppose it's rather like smoking, isn't it? I suppose. Yeah, it is. It is. But obviously, it's, people are becoming, people are going on holiday in greater numbers. You've got air travel, obviously. I mean, it's extraordinary that um, so many people, for example, are going to Mallorca before the Second World War. So 20,000 people um, were going to Mallorca a year in 1930. By 1935, 40,000 people were staying in hotels and 50,000 people were visiting on cruises a year. Because the famous person who goes there is Robert Graves. Robert Graves. But I think even before he goes, I mean, actually, even though he would deny it because he would sort of say, oh, Mallorca was ruined after I moved there. I think the very fact that he's there is part of a trend that people are going. Yes. So is it, um, I mean, is it is it the kind of the pattern that you have people like, uh, Robert Graves and the Durrells and uh, Paddy Lee Femur and yeah. kind of bohemian middle-class people going to live on Greek islands or yes. Balearic islands and they settle there and uh, the people yeah, yeah, yeah. with their exactly. salad dressing and all that kind of stuff. Right. So Cardamili, where Paddy Lee Fermer lived, you know, is now a very, very, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not a, a resort with concrete hotels, but it's very busy in the summer. Guest house is full, tons of people on the beaches. You struggle to get a table in the tavernas. It's exact, and, and, and actually the fact that Patrick Lee Firma lived there is part, part of the of attraction. The exactly. Yeah. It's part of the attraction. Of course, all of this said, most people are not going on these kinds of holidays in the 1920s and 30s because it's not until 1938 that you have the Holidays with Pay Act. So that's something that the trade unions have been pressing for throughout the 20th century. And finally, basically, effectively, it's, it's complicated business but effectively you get a week's holiday socialism absolute well, utter socialism well it isn't socialism it's actually the chamberlain government that um, sounds that, that why didn't that. say why didn't stanley baldwin it seems a very stanley baldwin measure uh allow the working man to have a, a week's holiday yeah that's a very good question i'll have to i'll have to consider that tom maybe stanley was not in, maybe he had feet of clay yeah um maybe he was distracted by his strenuous efforts to rearm before the second world war Tom. <laughs> yeah, maybe was he was maybe was he the, was that well he of course stanley borden was a great believer in holidays i mean he basically took about six months holiday a year in aix-les-bains in france where he just sort of strolled around and read books and smoked his pipe and you know didn't do any work people would say borden was terribly indolent when he was prime minister poor old stanley is not emerging well from this podcast which is an unusual on the rest is history. I think I think prime ministers who go off and don't you know don't mess things up by don't do any work. holiday. I think there's a case case to be that made. Is for the, it. That is the essence of conservatism, Tom. <laughs> well, just, there you go. You've just said. So anyway, most people are not going to Mallorca. Most people are doing two things. One is they're going to the seaside resorts that we talked about in the last podcast. So somewhere like Blackpool, Blackpool is getting 17 million visitors a year by the 1940s. It's absolutely extraordinary number of people. And are people and going the to other, the Lake District as well? Mm, is that more middle class thing? It's a very middle class thing, right? So the masses are definitely not going to the Lake District. Yeah, okay. And they're going to the beach because this is this is Beatrix Potter, isn't it? So she's presumably starting to. I mean, people going to the Lake District that goes back to Wordsworth and Coleridge, but you know, the National Trust, Beatrix. Yeah, Potter, you're not going to sell that to, to people yeah. who are working in in mills in Bolton or something. Would you like to go walking in the Lake District? 
No, but it's part of. I mean, it's part of the um, the British tourist ecosystem, isn't it? It is. So it it's is kind of all emerging way. in parallel. Yeah. But the big thing that has become part of the, the ecosystem is the holiday camp. I might be wrong about this, but I think this is something that, in its popularity, is unique to Britain, um, and it comes out of the cooperative, the collective ethos of the mid twentieth century. So there had been camps with tents from about the early, about 1903 or so on, I think it is. Um, 1906, there's a camp in Norfolk. There was a camp on the Isle of Man. But the man who is most associated with this is um, Billy Butlin. Mm-hmm. So lots of our British listeners will have heard of Butlins, Butlins, which is, even though it wasn't actually the, the biggest of the holiday camp chains, it's the one that's most famous. The first one was at Skegness. It was at Skegness. Because uh, I went and, you know, I mentioned the this tour that we did Going in a straight line across Britain. Yeah. Did and you we go to Butlins Skeg- and Skegness? We ended up in Skegness. No, we didn't We didn't stay in Butlins. I stayed in the worst hotel in Britain, in Skegness. <laughs> oh, no. It was awful. You're going to Blackpool next year, so enjoy Blackpool. The walls were very, very thin. Yeah. And I was sleeping next to a group of, I guess, six people, because mm-hmm. their voices were all very penetrating, who were playing a, a, a kind of computer game, you know, lots of noises. Yeah, and then they started having group sex. Oh no! Which went on till it went on till half past one, then it stopped. Yeah. I thought, oh, thank God. And then, obviously, the two who were left kicked off again. Oh no! So I had to get to sleep till three. That sounds terrible. I wish I'd gone to Butlins. So that happened to me in uh, the Hotel Niki in uh, Sofia, Bulgaria. People who've listened to our previous podcast will be aware of my rendezvous with Boncho Todorov and the Bulgarian Football Union <laughs> on my own grand tour in the 1990s. And we stayed in a hotel in Sofia and there were a group of Finnish soldiers oh. who were serving with a UN peacekeeping force in what is now North Macedonia. And they were on a, a weekend break. Leave. And we started, and after we'd been to this match that Boncho Todorov had procured us the tickets for, we started. We were chatting in the hotel to these Finnish soldiers, and they were very, very friendly, very personable. And then their eyes lit up, and they said, "Ah, excellent! The order has arrived." And the order was an order for some local ladies of the night that they had placed with a pimp. Right. And they're all sharing the same room. So and again, were, it was were the, the walls same, very thin? It was well. Actually, I wasn't right next to them. My friends were right next to them, and my friends complained about halfway through the night. They complained to reception. And uh, the Finnish soldiers invited them to join in. <laughs> oh, God. And they didn't. Um, so, yeah, this is obviously a theme of both our holidays. Yeah. Uh, but not really a theme of, of, of the Butlins. History. That's not no, going on in Butlins, Butlins. We've, got off, we've gone off piece again. So Billy Butlin, uh, he was born in South Africa. He came to Britain. He ended up as a sort of fairground entrepreneur. And he had the idea. He thought, what if we had a kind of basically accommodation at the fairgrounds? And um, he builds his first camp in 1936. And straight away, he, you know, you, you pay, I think it's three pounds and you get a week's accommodation at this holiday camp and you get all your food. And they have all these activities, but he notices on the first day that the guests aren't really, they're a bit diffident and they're not kind of joining in the activities. And he gets one of the staff to entertain the guests with jokes and sketches. Heidi, hi. Heidi, hi, exactly. Anyone who's seen the sitcom of the 1980s will know this. And with, and it's with that that the Redcoats were born, the idea that the camp will have its own troop of entertainers who will kind of cajole you into all of these... Forced jollity. Utter enforced jollity. Knobbly knees competitions, yeah. singing, yeah. just these 
what to me, I mean, if it's that or the folk singing, for me, <laughs> that's a very tough. For? Which would you go I'd for? I'd probably choose Butlins over the yeah, folk singing. I think you would. I, what would you choose? I de- I definitely choose Butlins. I've always quite fancied it. I could see you as a red coat, Tom. I think you'd be an excellent yeah, red I, coat. I, yeah. So a lot of very, Jimmy Tarbuck was a red coat. Cliff Richard was a red coat. Jimmy Perry of wrote Dad's Army. Michael Barrymore. Right, Michael Barrymore. Now Ringo Starr used to play at Butlins. Before we joined the Beatles. He yeah. did indeed. Yeah. So you could see Ringo Starr. Um, but anyway, Butlins is tremendously successful. He opens another one in Clacton and then bang, Second World, World War II happens. So that's a bit of a break. And what's interesting about World War II coming is that high-minded people are going to Germany on holiday. They're going to see concentration camps, aren't they? They go to Dachau. Yeah, I mean, astonishing. So the, the Nazis actually put on tours of Dachau. They, they, they are pretending that it's a kind of model camp. And um, people who are interested in kind of international fellowship, so people who are kind of pacifist and pacifist inclination, they're still going to Germany. So the things like the, 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 the Polytechnic um, Travel Association. So that group is still organizing tours. But they're not going to Dachau, of, are they? No, but it's they're going to German I mean, surely castles. Surely, it's, it's, and... it's people who are more on the right who are. No, doing... I don't think that's right at all. No? I think quite the reverse. I think if you are on the right, you know, firmly on the right. I mean, okay, not if you're far right, but if you're, so for example, you might sympathise with Churchill. You're not going to go to Germany on a holiday. But on the, I mean, no, but if you're on the far right, if you're on the far right, a, a Nazi yeah. sympathiser. So, so Philip Larkin, we talked about Philip Larkin in the previous oh, yes, episode. Yes, his awful parents. His parents loved Hitler's Germany, and they went on yeah. holiday there. And, yeah. um, or Ted Heath actually went on holiday to Germany and shook Himmler's hand at a Nuremberg but, rally. But he was he was appalled by it, wasn't he? He was appalled by it, yeah. He, he was on a cycling it. holiday. He was indeed. Yeah. Yes, he was. But cooperative – so the cooperative tours, I mean, the cooperative, that's obviously politically kind of progressive. Um, they were still advertising – Rhineland and Bavaria walking tours in August and September 1939. On this basis, they said they will lead to the formation of friendships which will break through the barriers of race, creed, and class and make for understanding and peace. And amazingly, these sort of um, travel groups were avatar because obviously Austria didn't exist anymore. So they just listed all the Austrian destinations under Germany. I suppose, I don't know. I mean, I'm not attacking them, Tom. You don't have to stick up for them. I'm just, I'm just stating a fact. Yeah, it's well, it's. You just yeah. don't want to hear anything against the sandal-wearing folk singers, am I right? We are so conditioned to the the morality and the politics, yeah, of protest that I imagine then it was it was a more novel experience. First of all, you have to know how bad the Nazis are, and I accept yeah. that probably by 1939 people do know how bad they are. But then there's a certain kind of mental calculus required, isn't there, to think, well, we shouldn't go there. Because we, uh, by going there, our money will be going towards yeah, I think that's a fair economy. That's a fair. But also, I mean, yeah, because you might say, well, we want to go there to show that we are still friends. Of course, of course, you might. I mean, you and I have both been to Vladimir Putin's Russia, haven't we? Yes. On, so, I mean, it's not like, but I mean, people could well say, oh, you you were happy to give him your, you know, your your money and support his economy and yeah, and I very much felt I was. You know, it was a chance to meet Russians that I wouldn't otherwise have. Did you? Yes. Did you convert them to the to your way of thinking? <laughs> I didn't have to because we you already talked about on, Christianity. No doubt, we agreed on the same, pretty much the <laughs> oh, same right. thing. But I, I think it was it would have been a more complicated because more novel decision yeah. to make. And of course, the people who are doing this think that they are by and large they are doing the right thing. 
They they absolutely think they are. That by going abroad, I mean, we've talked in all these episodes about how travel and tourism has always been associated with the idea of um, of, of broadening the mind, of making friends. Of uh, it's always had perceived to have had a kind of spiritual and ethical dimension. Going back, I suppose, to pilgrimages, if you really want to trace it all the way back. And I definitely think the people in the 1920s and 30s thought that they were they were doing their bit to avoid another continental war by making friends in Bavaria and, and yeah. all that sort of thing. Anyway, listen, we should take a break. So um, when we come back, we're going to look at the, the post-war world. We are indeed. Very, very much moving on to your home territory. So that's very exciting. Sam Brook at his best. Don't miss it. With no pressure. See you after the break. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome back. Uh, we are going on holiday again, are we not, Dominic? We're always on holiday. This podcast is one long holiday for me, Tom. One long sunny holiday. Um, and Second World War has ended. And I guess we are now entering the age of, well, we're kind of approaching the age of mass tourism, aren't we? We are. How does that develop? How long does it take for mass tourism to, um, to kind of become the phenomenon that we're familiar with today after the war? Depends what you, just, what you mean by mass tourism. So mass tourism... In terms of people having holidays, just holidays very basically, once Britain is out of austerity at the end of the 1940s, but even actually during that, I mean, they've still got statutory holidays. So the late 1940s, very early 1950s is the absolute high point of the seaside resorts, I would say. Tens of millions of people going to these resorts. If you're a British soldier. Yeah. uh, And you've been posted, you know, you've been slogging your way up Italy or across France and Germany. I mean, maybe... Going abroad again is the last thing you want to do. Possibly for some. I mean, it completely depends on the individual. For some people, you definitely hear people saying that. 
But then for others, you hear people saying, I'd love to show my family Egypt or, you know, Sicily or people who would not normally have seen Sicily or Greece or Egypt have seen it. Exactly right. But at first, they're not doing that because not really until, you know, the 1960s does the age of package tourism start in earnest. So for about 15 years after the end of the Second World War, the big things are still the holiday resorts and the holiday camps. So we talked about Billy Butlin before the break. Butlin opens loads of camps in the 1940s and 1950s, so at Eyre, at Mosney, at Bognor Regis, at Minehead. Um, and these are, you know, he these are appealing to thousands and thousands of people. So at the big camps, you will have 10,000 people there at a time. Um, and the, you know there are all these amazing statistics about you know Butlin will have be getting through four million eggs a week or two hundred and forty tons of pork chops or whatever it might be, and at these and these camps are now have this incredible ecosystem of games. They have all these prizes, so um, lovely legs prize, knobbly knees we mentioned before, shiniest bald head prize. Now we both know who would have won that. Anastasius. Emperor Anastasius. Yeah, yes, he would absolutely aced that. Who we talked about in our Justinian Theodora podcast. He, because he was complimented, wasn't he, on the baldness of his head? Yeah, the gleam, the silvery gleam by Roman writers. So you're doing that now. One other thing you have now in the 50s that a lot of people would not have had before the war is cars. So you have caravanning. Caravanning is a massive success story of the 50s and 60s. Mr. Toad had a caravan, didn't he, in the wind and the wind? Yeah, Willis. he did, but then he gets a car. Yeah. But a lot of people, um, do it the other way around <laughs> yeah. after the Second World War. They get a car and then they get a, a caravan. And these are not Mr. Toad style gypsy caravans. They are sort of, as people call them, kind of bungalows on wheels. So yeah. um, they are sort of very shiny and very fancy. Driving very, very slowly down single lane roads. And it's also, this is probably the point at which places like you talked about the Lake District before the break, Devon and Cornwall are swamped with caravan sites and the yeah. roads. Now, I know the, the A303 is a particular concern of yours, Tom, <laughs> because of yeah. Stonehenge. This is the point at which people are complaining about the roads to the West Country being blocked by, by caravans. But then the big innovation, I mean, I know you've been waiting for this. It is um, the, the, the story of Vladimir Reitz. So Vladimir Reitz is a white Russian emigre, very excitingly. Um, he was born in Moscow. His mother fled to Western Europe in 1928 and left his father behind. He never saw his father again. He arrives in London in 1936 and he speaks Russian, Polish and German, but not a word of English. And he ends up becoming a Reuters journalist. And Vladimir writes is to this podcast what Thomas Cook was to the last one. He right. is the pioneer, the inventor. The, the, because what he does is he basically invents the overseas package flight. So Thomas Cook is leading not just Britain, but the world. Is this yeah. something specific to Britain or is this being developed elsewhere as well? No, I think Wrights develops it before anybody else does, actually. I mean, I think maybe the Germans are just behind. Because the Germans are always uh, stereotypically are the, the competition, aren't they, for the sun yeah. loungers? And well, the... stereotypically, they're always um, half an hour ahead, aren't they, yeah. in the competition? They get their the tails out. Yeah. But in fact, in yeah. fact, we were developing them just ahead of the Germans. I mean, that's very. I think so. I think so. Maybe, maybe if we have German listeners, they can write in and correct me. I mean, I imagine actually these things often happen roughly at the same time. But I'd imagine just because Britain is recovering, perhaps that little bit quicker than Germany. I mean, obviously, then is later overtaken by Germany. I mean, who knows? Anyway, Wrights was a Reuters journalist, and he went to Corsica, where his friend was running a water polo club for some white Russians in Corsica. (laughs) 
And uh, wow. he basically has this eureka moment where he thinks, I could do a bit of a Thomas Cook. I could book them onto a plane, bring them over, put them up. And he goes back home and he there are all kinds of regulations that make this really difficult. So what he has to do is charter his own DC-3 planes. And then he basically needs to get tourists onto them. And because of the incredible sort of complicated bureaucratic regulations that are designed to protect the existing airlines, the state-owned or state-funded airlines, he is only given the permission by the Ministry of Aviation if he does this purely for students and teachers. So they advertise, he advertises his plan in the Teacher's World magazine, the Nursing Mirror and the New Statesman. But again, this, this kind of progressive... Exactly. Worthy. Exactly. So yeah, fascinating. people who are sick of the folk songs and the sandals now yeah. have another, another option. Another outlet. Yeah. And he basically says, you pay me £32 and I'll fly you out to Corsica and you'll be under canvas initially, but you'll get unlimited food, unlimited wine, loads of sun, beach, brilliant. And they go, they go from Gatwick, uh, the 180 of them. When they get to Corsica, there's a brass band waiting for them and villagers with garlands of flowers. And they stay in the Camp Franco-Britannique, Calvi, where they have a dance floor and a, and a bar and all this stuff. And the rest is history, Tom, mm. because after this, writes his company Horizon, they have camp in Mallorca, they have camps in the Costa Brava, um, and they become more and more, and they have club, they have reps. Do you know who he interviewed? Get this, who Vladimir writes interviewed as a travel rep for Horizon and turned him down. Didn't think he'd be very good in the 1950s. Alan Wicker. You're actually pretty close. It's the future Tory MP and rake Alan Clark. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's very improbable. That yeah, very that's very improbable. improbable. I know Corsica is, is kind of France-ish, but it is yeah. France. The sense I have of Britain and France, say in the 50s and early 60s, is, is that Britain is absolutely, it's all about knobbly knees competitions and yeah. um, handkerchief, knotted handkerchiefs on, on stopping pates from going red. Yeah. Whereas France, it's effortless chic. Uh, it's it bikinis. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that, Tom. Because did you think I would come to this podcast without information about the history of the bikini? No. If so you great. You mistaken. haven't got information about the bikini, have you? I, I do. haven't just inadvertently allowed you to reveal everything you know about the bikini. <laughs> I, I very much enjoyed researching this, as you can imagine. Um, so the bikini was invented by a man called Louis Rayard in 1946. And it was unveiled at the, the Piscine Molitor, which was a swimming pool in Paris. He got a showgirl called Micheline Bernardini. You see, that that is the difference. We have butlins. Yeah. They have showgirls advertising newly invented bikinis. So swimsuits had always been, you know, enormous. And I should say that Dominic at this point is gesturing. I am gesturing in a very, to myself. In a very, in a very French manner. That's I have. <laughs> swimsuits had always been enormous and made of wool and just generally very unsexy. Yeah. Um, but French designers just were sort of competing in 1946 to, to, to invent something, something, you know, befitting an age that had come out of the war and wanted to sort of let its hair down and stuff. So there are two different designers. There's one called Jacques Heim, and he advertises his bathing. He calls it the world's smallest bathing suit, and he calls it the Atom. Mm -hmm. And Louis Rayard, you know, invents what we know now as the bikini. It's all about nuclear weapons, isn't it? It is. He says his advertising slogan is smaller than the world's smallest bathing <laughs> suit. 
And he names it the bikini after the bikini atoll where the Americans have just done yeah. an atomic test. So it's very much, it's a swimsuit for the atomic age. Yeah, so you've got the atom and then you've got a swimsuit named after a nuclear explosion. It's enormously successful, though not interestingly in America. Because they're too puritanical. Too puritanical. So it's the 60s that it takes off in America, is it? With the Beach Boys and itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot bikini. Yeah. And the sort of Beach Boys surf culture and all of that stuff. You were asking about California in the last episode. I mean, the 60s is the heyday of the Californian beach scene. And bikini is, I guess, a, a part of that. But meanwhile, obviously, the British are beginning to desert their holiday camps in the 60s and to go abroad. So by 1971, British tourists are taking 4 million holidays abroad. So you get places like Benidorm. So it's Spain, basically, isn't it? Which at this point is still under Franco. And Franco needs cash. He needs hard currency um, because his economy is so sclerotic. And one way of kickstarting his economy is to bring in, is to go for tourism in a big way. And, and Franco, in alliance with Spanish property developers and sort of landowners and things, they basically turn a lot of these very sleepy, pretty fishing villages into concrete, you know, concrete black pools, basically. Yeah. And Benidorm is a famous example. So Benidorm in 1957, south of Valencia, it has fewer than 3,000 people living in it. So that's 1957. By 1960, it's getting 30,000 British and German visitors every August. It has 300 new buildings. It has 30 high-rise blocks of flats, 34 hotels, and four cinemas. And, and you know, however many thousand English breakfasts being served a day. And this is a sort of almost a, an overnight transformation of huge stretches of the Spanish coastline, but also an overnight transformation for lots of ordinary Britons many of whom would never have aspired to go abroad. They could never have dreamed of emulating the Grand Tour that we did in the first episode, or even the Thomas Cook Tours of episode two. So there's a great moment, actually, Tom, 1970. The former Deputy Labour leader, George Brown, is addressing a meeting at a Labour club in the 1970 election. And he says, only a couple of years ago at the Labour club in my constituency, you'd have seen a poster advertising the annual outing. It used to be a day at Blackpool or New Brighton or Skegness, where do you think people go now? And at that point, the secretary of the Labour Club gets up and he says, oh, this is a great opportunity to advertise our annual outing. We're actually going for a week at the Mediterranean. And that, you know, I mean, that's interesting that he says the Mediterranean because he doesn't clearly doesn't know the name of the resort they're going yeah, to. Where it is. He's conscious that it's somewhere hot with sun and sand and sangria. And I suppose the film that holds a mirror up best to this kind of great sociological process of change would be Carry On Abroad, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. Good choice, Tom. Very good choice. 1972, Carry On Crew. Yeah. So for our overseas listeners, we'll just find this weird, obscure babble now, but uh, British listeners will probably have seen the film or be aware of it. So the Carry On film are these sort of um, sort of farcical, bawdy, uh, sort of institution, isn't it? They do a Carry On film a year or so. Same team. Yeah, kind of bras snapping and oh, exactly lectures going eh, yeah. and all that kind of stuff so <laughs> james's laugh which i know you're it's very very, very 70s very 60s 70s um, so they go to a uh, what they what is billed as a paradise island in the mediterranean called els bells when <laughs> <laughs> they get there the the hotel isn't finished all the electrical fittings explode the sand comes out of the taps rather than water um all of these kinds of things they behave very badly Does chaos ensue Absolute hilarious chaos, Tom. Hilarious antics. They all end up in prison. But of course, the reason that this is funny and resonant 
is because this was completely recognizable yeah. to thousands, if not millions of British holidays. I mean, I can well remember going on a holiday in the 1980s with my parents to Crete and getting the phone call literally as we were on our way out of the door. So our bags were packed and the, and the, um, the tour company saying, your hotel's not quite finished. So the first week of your two-week holiday, you'll have to stay at this other hotel. So we stayed at this other hotel, and then on the Friday, they said, why don't you go and drive out to the new hotel and, and check it out? And we went, and it was a build. It was a complete a building utter site. building site. I mean, just laughable, absolutely laughable. There was no quality control at all. And it was actually only at the beginning of the 70s, really, that the BBC did its holiday program and ITV did Wish You Were Here, in which they were – I mean, part of the point of those programs was they were holding all these companies to account. And actually, right. Horizon was one of the better companies, but they were holding companies that otherwise were pretty much, I mean, the regulation was pitiful. Okay, so that's really changed then, hasn't it? Because travel programs now are all about basically making you feel jealous. Yeah. But back then, it was it was much more kind of consumer watchdog. There was an element of that, but there was definitely, because of course, it was incredibly nerve-wracking for people to go on. I mean, there's no internet. You don't have any information about the place you're going, other than some flimsy brochure, and, and relying on the travel rep when you get there. Yeah. You would go on the plane where everybody, you know, through clouds of smoke on the plane because everybody yeah, was smoking. smoking their pipes. You get off into the into the heat. You don't speak a word of Spanish or Greek or something, um, and then you're sort of all herded on buses to this hotel, and you've got no idea really what's what's awaiting you. But but it must be amazing. Oh, incredible! I mean, you you read the um, the diaries and letters and things of people who went to let's say Ibiza in 1969 or 1971, and they say you know. They'd never experienced heat like it, I guess. Heat and the smells and the food. So obviously, at first, people are very suspicious of the food. There are wonderful stories of groups. of. There's a lovely story about a group of Derbyshire miners who take their own beer and their own tinned food to Italy because they think, you know, obviously you can't eat the local food. It's going to be awful. Foreign mark. Yeah. Foreign mark, exactly. But by the 70s, what you definitely get in Britain is all of those places we've been talking about before, like Blackpool and the holiday camps, they are in the most hideous decline. So at Butlins, for example, all the days of the knobbly knee competition, I mean, they're still trying to do them, but Butlins have had terrible trouble with, it's so cheap, you see, that they've had teenagers going and sort of uh, rowdy youngsters. And it's basically become, there's a lot of stories about violence and drunkenness and this sort of thing. Butlins have banned single young men from going. Yeah. in an attempt to clean up and reclaim their family. But is that basically because, because the package tour to Spain isn't that much more expensive? Exactly. It's so cheap. So companies like Horizon are doing it, you know, what did we say it was, £32 in uh, 1950 or so? Mm. I mean, okay, Butlins is a fair bit cheaper, but it's not out of reach for working-class people in the 1970s. If you're in work, if you've got a steady wage, you can aspire to go to Spain for a week or even two weeks. So, Dominic... The development of the tourist industry in the 70s, to what extent, say in 2022, is the tourist infrastructure descended directly from that? Is this when tourism, as, as, as we have experienced it through our lives, as people experience it now, is, is that basically where the foundations are being laid? No, actually, I would say there's a great break. And I think the great break is the internet and the 1990s. Oh, of course. Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, so I think the difference is that the 70s is very much in the tradition that goes back to Thomas Cook, going back to the, you know, the Victorians. Um, and, and there's always a middleman. There is always a, you know, there's a sort of, there's a collective ethos. You go in, a, you know, there's a sense of a group. You know, if you were staying at one of these big concrete hotels, 
as as I did as a child in the early 1980s. Um, lots of kind of group activities laid on. There was an expectation you'd join the kid, you'd be in the kids' club. Um, there was a sort of you know, flamenco evenings, um, excursions by coach from the hotel, all that sort of stuff. And I think that world really began to break up in the 1990s. Once people are booking their own flights individually through because cheaper flights, the deregulation of the aviation industry. Once they're, you know, I mean, of, co- of course, those that industry still exists. But it's there are so many challenges to it now, right? And yeah. I think for younger people, the idea that you would walk into—we mentioned Lund Poly because of the Polytechnic Association—the the idea that you would walk into a high street travel agent and from an incredibly flimsy brochure and about six lines of text, choose a hotel to spend a week or two weeks, and then put yourself completely in the hands of this sort of um, of these gatekeepers, I guess, mm. which is the travel company and its representatives. I mean, you would never do that now, would you? So Thomas Cook's gone bust, hasn't it? So, yes, Thomas Cook Group went bust in 2019 into compulsory liquidation. Yeah. Thomas Cook Holidays was spun off as a successor um, and has been trading for a couple of years. Oh, that's a great shame, isn't it? Well, it still exists with the same name. I suppose. Yes, I suppose. The interesting question, I suppose, I mean, we've, there was tons of stuff we were meant to be talking about, and we haven't, we haven't talked about Eviva Espana, the Sylvie Rathammer hit. I'm quite, quite relieved about that. But now that we've mentioned it, we don't need to mention it again. We haven't really talked about Heidi High and its um, role in the culture of the 1980s. But maybe you know, it's important fine. to leave people wanting more, isn't it? <laughs> it always um, is. It always is. I suppose the interesting questions are: what are the sort of the themes that run through this? And actually, I think there's an extraordinary sense of continuity in the way that people understand travel and holidays. Don't you? That sort of sense of well, I'd say first of all, the thing that's really striking is classified. Yes, definitely. Always been there and always will be. So that is absolutely kind of soldered through, going right the way back to the 17th century. And your choice of holiday now says an enormous amount about your class position, doesn't it? Because choice is almost infinite now. And what you choose says so much about you. But I guess also this extraordinary tradition of teetotal dissenters <laughs> basically yes. constructing... Yeah, the kind of the fabric of the tourist industry. I mean, I well, that sort of high mindedness to holidays. That's that's something that before we got into this subject, I didn't, I hadn't gauged the extent to which the Grand Tour, for example, there was a high mindedness to the Grand Tour. The idea about you know educating yeah. yourself, as people now um, say, so so sort of um, censoriously. Yeah, yeah, and but we still have that, don't we? There's still a sort of sense that when you go, if you're a sort of educated middle-class person you're expected to go on a holiday that will broaden your horizons in which you will see i don't know indigenous people weaving some nice rugs or something like that we went on a family holiday to stay with friends in america who had a a wonderful place by the sea and we just stayed in this house and you know had wonderful american food and just kind of lazed around and i remember my my daughters being stunned that there wasn't an obligation at some point to go and see a temple on a hill in mid, you know, midday. (laughs) But did you feel cheated that you weren't able to do that? No, I loved it. I really loved it. But maybe that's because going to see a temple in boiling heat is, is work to you. Whereas to a lot of people, it's not work. It's, it's fun. No, it was always fun, but I just realized that I did have a kind of, I, I, it came to me that my holidays had always been faintly puritanical, which is why I found, the puritanical strain throughout, you know, this 
everything we've been looking at so interesting because there's quite a lot of self-recognition there. Yeah, well, I think what's really fascinating is that holidays are not just meant to be fun. They're meant to be good for you. And that idea about health as well, um, which goes back to the sort of to, to Brighton and to Bath and then to the those awful German 19th century spas, that's still there. But I think also, and this is as true of Butland as it is of the Millord going off in 1720, there's a, there's a fear of boredom, which also yes. hangs over it. Yeah. And anxiety, you know, you think you work so hard, you're you know, so tired, you need a break. But even as you're heading off, there's this nervous, what if I'm bored? You know, what yeah. if there's nothing to do? What if I get fed up? I need to book and I need to urgently book a sea kayaking trip for us or <laughs> exactly. whatever it might be. <laughs> exactly. You know, so that's, you know, the Butlins expresses that just as much as the uh, Boswell going off to see Rousseau. It does indeed. But Tom, you've got a holiday coming up, haven't you? I mean, this hasn't put you off your holiday, has it? End of September, yeah. Where are you going? Are you able to tell the listeners? Going to Corfu. Oh, very nice. Is this a cricket? Playing cricket and then staying on for two weeks after. Very nice. The key question, as listeners to the last podcast will know, is this. Are you going to drink any seawater? Uh, I think, pro- well, I probably will because I- I'll, you know, I'll probably <laughs> fall out swimming. of a boat or something. <laughs> inadvertently gulp it down, but not deliberately, no. I'm not going to. Okay. Well, I mean, that's the thing that's, um, I think that and those those terrible treatments and the je- the gas injections, I think I could definitely live without that on holiday. I mean, maybe there'd be a market for um, a kind of retro holiday agent. That's a brilliant idea. That would that would provide you with all these t- terrible... Tom, that, forget uh, the podcasting. That re- is how well, we well, will Maybe we could do it millions. under the aegis of the podcast. The rest is history, period. Period, period holidays. holidays. Period holidays. We, you yeah. can have a choice of, you can go on a grand tour. <laughs> You can go to to Brighton and drink seawater. You can go to a German, to a German spa, spa. Yeah. or you can do the Kaiser's Fjord trip before the First World War, maybe, or a Butlins holiday. I've been to a Butlins holiday. I've been I filmed to Butlins holiday camp. Well, I think this is this is a very exciting kind of spin off yeah. from the from the podcast. This so, is great. Uh, watch this space. Very very exciting. The blind beat didn't work out, but this is the future. We haven't quite finished because tomorrow we're going to do something slightly different and yet also at the same time similar. We're going to go back to uh, the ancient world and see if there was anything that approximates to what we would understand as holidays, tourism in the ancient world. So we will see you then. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. <laughs>